You're listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little mudsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellers the king. Oh. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Hi there and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. Well, today I had the good fortune of speaking with none other than John Law. Now, John Law is a family man, a businessman. He's skateboarder, a surfer, and, and very competent in those things, I might say. he uh, I think he won the first Victorian skateboarding championship for his age division. He will correct me. Um but then won the overall. So and also a uh, very competent surfer came third in Bells in 1974. Um, you know, uh, I think he's an avid golfer today. John is the co-founder of Quicksilver. Quicksilver, uh, for those of you that don't know, I don't know who doesn't know who Quicksilver is, but just in case, it's a um, well today it's a multinational surf snowwear brand um but uh its humble beginnings was in in a garage i believe making board shorts and um john and alan green built it into a um you know a multinational empire uh, that really has had such a profound um uh impact on the surfing culture the world the people um that they sponsored and you know like far out man it holds a lot of storage in my mind as a young person looking at uh, some of these heroes Tommy Carroll and Ross Clark and uh, Kelly Slater and you know these are just a few I mean there's a lot the list is long long of of great people that have been affiliated with the company Um, and so yeah had the good fortune of speaking to John and his experience of walking into that and what that looked like and um, yeah and and some other things so anyway if you're out there John thank you so much for coming into the horse's mouth I super appreciate it this weekend I went away I nearly didn't go you know COVID has me a bit lazy it's a little easy just to chill at home and hang out locally and just keep it on the DL but um, I decided to throw the swag in the car and and get away and um, spend some time with some friends and uh, I tell you what I'm just so glad that I did you know my knee jerk is nah but I'm so glad I went yeah because you know to come home with some fresh eyes some new experiences to have had a shitload of laughs um, some good waves and and just some quality time with some some really good friends. I feel blessed. So if you're um, if you're finding yourself like me, just in the um, just going nah nah, just fucking stay at home. It's a bit easier. Well, it is most of the time. Honestly, you know, you know what kind of coffee you're getting at home, and you know what uh, the food's always good. But uh, you know, the sense of adventure. I know that's a big part of my soul, and 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 through COVID has been missing a little bit, and just to even get away for the weekend has just throwing some you know sprinkled some fairy dust in my mind far out anyway look whoever you are out there in the wide world i hope you enjoy my chat with john law um i'll see you on the other side is, is interesting wow wait till you hear two hours of crap a complete and total farfarama Hi, this is David Bowie. Pretty things have gone to hell. Hello. 
And did you um, was was the ocean and the beach a big part of like your childhood? Did you have you know dinners on the beach, or were your parents beach orientated? Well, my mother was more so than my father, and so during the summertime we used to go to the beach really regularly. But it certainly became a big part of my life because I ended up, and I can't really recall how it happened, but. If I went down the the opposite direction or Denny Street direction, you come to uh, Brighton Beach, and Brighton Beach had baths as well as Middle Brighton baths, which was near the Middle Brighton Pier. And so up to the left of the house was um, the Brighton Beach baths, and adjacent to the bars was a dilapidated pier that was half burnt down half dilapidated but I became friends with one of the children of the parent that uh, managed the the bars Uh, Greg Lucas was his name so I became quite friendly with him and the bars have that elevated platform that you can look over the fence and you can dive off the platform into the bars and then they'd have the wrought iron fencing where the ocean could, or the bay water could flow through the bars. Yeah. So people began, well, people were surfing between the bars and the, the pier and it, the bars gave a little bit of protection and so it was kind of like an okay surf spot in the sense that there is no real ocean swells or anything like that in the bay. It's all wind-driven. But by the same token... Um, there were waves that sort of sometimes, depending on the wind direction, gave a little bit of protection, so they became a little bit glassy and and they didn't really peel off like an ocean wave, but there were opportunities to actually ride the waves instead of just going straight to the beach. You could actually angle and, and surf them. So that's where I began to um, to take up surfing. And so who was an influence there for you? Was it the, the gentleman that you just said before? Uh, no, well, he, he was just part of you know, my, my friendship and, and a couple of other young boys we were at that time. And we were just observing the, um, the crew that was surfing and they were older guys, late adults or men at that time. And I wasn't even a teenager at that point. But available on the market was a foam surfboard called a Bartone. And it was sold at Clark Rubber. (laughs) And it was a little bit longer than a Cool Light. Um, The Cool Lights were a hard foamed, um, uh, not a surfboard, but a floating unit. Blue and white? Was that them? Uh, the cool lights were, uh, from memory, just a distinct colour, like a, 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 a sort of a grey blue, maybe. I think from just really testing memory. <laughs> but the Bartone was more of a, a diverse, uh, thicker foam, and uh, it wasn't as hard and as dense. Uh, but it was five feet long and it had a little bit more of a sur- sort of surfboard shape, like a tracker surfboard. It was wider in the top end of the board and it sort of tapered towards a square back tail. And it actually had like a keel that ran through from a couple of feet back from the nose all the way through and it broadened out 
in shape and it was a bit curved so it was sort of in a sense like a like a keel whereas the cool lights didn't have any any of that they just had like a molding molded ribbing that w- was something in the mold yeah uh, and they didn't have anything like a fin or whatever so we ended up purchasing these bar tones and that's as kids what we were using as surfboards to try and um, you know just catch waves and we were doing that at first just inside the bars because they were really soft and they weren't going to hurt any of their patrons that were were in there Uh, but the bar tones because of their shape and they got thinner towards the tail they used to snap it off and um, we ended up being replacing them on quite a number of occasions but um, but Clark Rubber were pretty good to us, but they were um, not a bad thing to start off on. I can't believe how long Clark Rubber has been around for. Yeah, it's well, I don't know how long prior to all that, but I just know that they were the people that introduced the Bartone as, yeah. a, as a surfing vehicle. And, um, and so at this stage of uh, your life, had you started skateboarding? Uh, <clears throat> probably the skateboarding started just... A little bit later than I, when I began surfing. Oh wow! Um, I don't think, I can't recall exactly when I for, saw you know the first skateboards, but it was around that time. I don't, I, from memory, I think I was probably a couple of years into the surfing before I got a skateboard. Now, were you influenced? Was there any sort of like influence from the media, like any magazines that you're looking at, or anything that for inspiration, like? Uh, well, with with regards to both surfing and um, and skateboarding, yeah, there was there was magazines around. There was Surfing World magazine yeah. uh, in Australia, and there was Surf About magazine, and then there was the American magazines were available too. There was Surfer, uh, and Surfing Illustrated was another one, and sometimes they covered people that may have been skateboarding. Certainly, they covered surfing in in general, and. Um, you know, Hawaii and California and that sort of thing, the American magazines, of course. And uh, and there was a couple of guys that did articles and whatnot on skateboarding. And I think there was a, a guy, and I might still have the magazine somewhere here, that uh, his name was Woodward, Woodward or something like that, and uh, in California. So, yeah, there was influence through the American magazines and the Aussie magazines as well. Yeah, yeah, I totally relate to that. Like there's these images that I have been burned in my head of surfing long before I started surfing and and skateboarding as well. That just I don't know. It just seems to be like yeah, when you're young and you're looking for things and just like I want to be that. That was sort of yeah. I love those inspirational things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with the skateboarding now, did you? There was no ramps, it was just street. What sort of stuff was happening? Yeah, it was just anywhere that you could skate, just on the footpaths and, you know, car parks or whatever you, you could find. And, you know, back at, it's nothing like it is now with the, the skate ramps and the way that they they do things. But you saw things that may have been in the magazines, like you'd do high jump on skateboard um in other words make a little high jump and you skate along and you got to jump over the the horizontal bar and land back on the the, um skateboard or you'd skate off um or platforms they might be you know six feet off the ground 
and you just find platforms and ride straight off them and then you'd have to land the skateboard and uh and so were they rubber wheels then or were they yeah well there was the t- two main skateboards that i recall there was a midget farrelly one that was uh made in sydney i think and it had more rubberized type wheels um, which were really good because they had great grip but because they were a bit softer and grippy they wore out really quite quickly because of just the nature of you know sliding and squeezing and whatnot whereas the other uh, skateboard had a more compound wheel so it it was not as grippy probably slid a little bit more but it was being much harder it would last a lot longer Mm. so yeah and which one was your preference well the one well i ended up being um being the uh the role model for for one of them you got sponsored yeah awesome yeah (laughs) that was um a gt skateboard it was called um and that's the one i was saying and it had the hard wheels yeah with it and uh it was made in um, in Melbourne. It was made by a company that made coffins. Cof- like real coffins? It, real coffins, yeah. <laughs> the, company, the company was called Webcraft. And because they moulded um, handles and arms and different things for the coffins, and, of course, the coffins were made out of wood, so they were able to make the castings for the, for the wheels... And um, and then they made the timber decks, and they ended up producing, you know, a skateboard, which is as well as selling coffins. Oh my god, that yeah. is so left to center. Yeah, that is awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, that remind. Uh, I'm just going to go sidetrack for a second and tell you about. I, I had this idea once that I thought uh, of saying a company custom coffins, mm-hmm. and so just say like you're an avid cat supporter, you'd have this like full on cats elaborate coffin or if you're a hell's angels you could have like a big motor (laughs) (laughs) i thought that was going to be my million dollar idea for a while (laughs) anyway um so then did they who had the very first so you were in the first victorian championship i was yeah i was um the rep for um the gt skateboards and used to do demonstrations as well. There was a few of us around and we'd travel around mostly Victoria. So you were but a rep? No, not a rep as, as a sales rep, uh, just a model representation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it was my image that was on the pamphlet that was on the skateboard of a photograph of me um, performing a just a, a jam sort of type thing. Like a power slide? Yeah, yeah. on the back wheels and the, and the back of the board. Awesome. That was the the image. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I ended up, um, you know, with a group of other kids just travelling around and did exhibitions um, and whatnot to promote skateboarding. Uh, and then eventually there was a, a Victorian championship that was held at a car park in, in the city of Melbourne called uh, uh, King's Parkade. And, um, yeah, there was various disciplines Um and they had had the event, yeah. And I believe you won. I won the junior section. Okay. Didn't win the open section. The junior section was, I think, very junior. It was only only under 
15. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I won that. And, and also I won the outright. There was an outright trophy for the person that won the most events between the two categories of, of junior and men's. So I got the outright trophy. Huge. Mm. And um, were your parents supportive of this? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, it was just, you know, just being a kid. That was the time when it was great being a kid because there was so much freedom of movement. You just ride bikes or you skateboard around or you go anywhere you want without too much fear. Yeah. Yeah, how awesome. And was that would have been pretty... So you were 14, did you say, 15? I might have been... I might have been... Yeah, I think I was probably 14. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was 1966 was actually the event time. So... What a um, an awesome! I always think of that though. No, I think of all the decades have been pretty good, um, but like uh, just the freedom aspect. Were you aware of the war that, at the time? Um, well, there was no war in nineteen sixty six, apart from maybe Korea or something. But well, Vietnam no. didn't come on until a bit later. I oh. think from in my mind, yeah. you know, from memory. Sort of was the late 60s. It might, have, it might have been just occurring or just simmering somewhere before it started to bubble into being, you know, a much more serious thing yeah. that developed in the late 60s, yeah. 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 And, um, but, my, you know, maybe I'm a bit wrong there. I can't really recall. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah no, yes. <laughs> you were 14. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to think about a war when you're 14? <laughs> Skateboarding, surfing. Yeah. Yeah. What war? Um, uh, yeah, so that would have been pretty good for your confidence, though, wouldn't it, being um, uh, a champion? And the skateboarding arena? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, to me, surfing was more important yeah. than, than skateboarding. Even then? Yeah, well, it's just was, I viewed skateboarding as just an auxiliary to surfing. It's something you did when you, you couldn't surf. Yeah. And being in Melbourne, even though I, I did surf in the bay, um, it wasn't, by that time, I was actually visiting, you know, the ocean and, and real ocean waves. So skateboarding was just an alternative until you get to surf. Awesome. Mm. And now were you surfing the peninsula side or were you surfing uh, coming over here? Uh, mostly it was over on the west coast um, of Victoria, but I did go as well down to the peninsula yeah. on occasion. But um, eventually um, I came down here a, a lot more than over there because I, I became friends of... The guy, his his father owns the Torquay pub, so I was able to stay with him. John, his, his name was John Porson. Yeah, he was a year younger than me, but we and amongst a lot of other kids that were living around Torquay um, just grouped up and became friends and just surfed together. Do you remember how you met John? Uh, no, I don't actually. I don't remember the first occasion that we met. Um, it would have been around that 13, 14 age. Um, and then it just developed from there, our friendship, yeah. And you've just, and you've, like the first time to talk E, do you remember um, falling in love with the place or was it? Uh, well, I don't think so. <laughs> Not falling. <laughs> I think, I, I think that the f first time I came here, it was. Um, now I have to get this right. It would be '63 or 1964 that I remember, and it was Easter, and it was a really big Easter. It was 
like huge um, and Fishos is a, is a small wave location that you could um, surf here and we obviously the people the guys that brought me down from from Brighton uh, they were surfing uh, Fishos at that time and the wind was really strong offshore on the day that we were we were coming down here and it was Easter and the swell was big and I hardly caught it a wave because the wind was that offshore so strong that and I wasn't used to the ocean yeah. as much at that time yeah yeah so I really struggled so it wasn't really necessarily a fond moment but it was an exciting moment because there was real waves they were big and it was offshore and this was at fish eyes yeah Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And um, and do you remember the first time that you surfed up on the bigger reefs? Uh, not the first time, but it would have been, uh, you know, f- close to that time. It just didn't yeah. really matter. It didn't take too long. Yeah. You know. So the, the road through there was there by then? The road through to where? To Bells. Well... The road to Bells was not where it is currently. It's yeah. one of the old roads. Yeah. So you go out the Great Ocean Road or the Anglesey Road, sometimes you call it, and then you turn off at Addiscott yes. and then drive in through that way, through Bones Road, and yeah. so you wouldn't go through the Bells Beach Boulevard because it wasn't made at that time. Okay, and yeah. there really, at that time, there wasn't even, for those that might know Jan Jack, there wasn't even Duffield's Road. There was really only the golf course estate, which is next, obviously next door to the golf course, but extends down to the Janjuk car park. And there virtually was no Janjuk anywhere west of that little area. It's just paddocks. Yeah. 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 Awesome. And, um, and so in this time when you met John Pawson and you got to stay at the pub and we... Were you up to shenanigans at that stage or were you sort of still underage or...? Yeah, well, we, oh, certainly we were underage, but um, no, we weren't up to too much shenanigans, um, really. But just like young kids, whatever they do, you know, it's what we did. Like if it was the weekend and the movie theatre was on, you'd go to the pictures or you'd go and hang out. And there, there really wasn't too many people and there wasn't too many activities in Torquay for, for young guys... That, that were approaching teenage or even teenagers at that time. So, um, so no, we, we used to, of course, during the summertime, they'd have a lot of bartenders that would work in the dining room. And, of course, we ate dinner at the Pawson's at, um, t- family table. And so the bartenders might sneak us a vodka and orange as <laughs> disguised as an orange juice or something like that on a few occasions. So that was about it. As uh, radical as we got, yeah, yeah, awesome, awesome, and um, and was it around? So is this this is sort of sixteen to eighteen? I'm I'm having a guess here. Um, yeah, that we might have had those sort of drinks about that age, yeah. And um, and how old were you when you first met Greeny? Uh, probably about seventeen, eighteen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just through surfing? Uh, through surfing, yeah, just through Torquay, really. Yeah. Because um, originally he went more so to Ocean Grove and 
developed a relationship with some of the guys there and then of course just through surfing drifted into Torquay a bit and then made Torquay more of his mainstay yeah yeah and um and at, at this stage of your life were you, you starting to think about like how, how are you going academically and stuff like that uh well not too bad um I've, I I did reasonably well at school up until um, virtually matriculation. That's that's the final year. Um, I was quite good at mathematics, so I ended up doing um, applied and calculus and pure mathematics, physics, and chemistry, <laughs> <laughs> which is crazy. That was in year twelve, but um, and I did have not so much an argument but a discussion with my mother at the beginning of that year 12 before it it opened up the school year about how I wanted to not do those subjects because you lead into those subjects the year before which is year 11 you more or less uh, uh, define that you're going to go into that mathematics sort of science-y type. And that's when you should uh, do the other side, p- choose whether or not you do humanities, which would be accounting and economics and other sort of humanity-type subjects. But I wanted to swap because I knew I wanted to be a businessman because I, through the skateboarding and just my general involvement in surfing, through my development years up until that point, um, I had experience around business business activities mm-hmm. and I had a, a, a reasonable grasp that I wanted to be more or less in business being as against being, say, a civil engineer or a pilot or somebody of that description. Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, because I was okay at those type of subjects, my mother convinced me to continue on with them. So in year 12, I, I didn't do as well as I should have and because I had a girlfriend at that time and I didn't have any interest in it. And I wasn't, up until that point, a type of person to study. I kind of did it naturally. And so... I wasn't really concentrating as much in that year as I probably should have to be able to pull it off without too much study. So as a result, I failed a few of those programs. And the best thing is, is that I really, as it's turned out, I didn't get into the university. And in fact, after that year, and it was um, in January, I think, memory from memory, when the results came out and John Pawson's father, John Pawson Sr., he was a chap that owned the pub, and the message came out from one of the guys, and I was at at the beach at the time, how the old man wanted to see me, and uh, he lectured me on how I should go back and repeat year 12. Um, So he, like, certainly he is an influencer, uh, tried to convince me to get back and and do that and go go into tertiary study. How did that feel? Well, I can I could understand you know, where he's coming from because that was his belief that that was the best way to go. Uh, whereas for me, I didn't really take a lot of 
credence from it. Yeah. I mean, I understood what he where he was coming from and and the benefit that he was trying to describe to me, but it didn't really have that a lot of influence as to what I was going to do because I wasn't going to go back to school. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as it turned out, I'm glad I didn't end up a civil engineer. Yeah. Nothing that I've got nothing against civil engineers, no, no. but it would certainly wouldn't have suited me. Mm. And um, and my life has been a lot richer, I think, as a result of of um, the way that uh, the path unfolded. So, do you think? Um do you, do you, this is going to sound a little bit airy-fairy, but do you think you had a sense of just following your own heart and trusting that there was another way for you as opposed to what everyone was saying? You know, because that's a pretty yeah. confusing time of your life. Well, it could be, but I think you probably hit the nail on the head in the sense that because up until that point um, I'd been competing in, in surf events all around Australia, um, both, you know, the Victorian events, of course, and then they'd lead to the Australian titles as to reasons why you'd, you'd travel. And I'd made the Victorian team on pretty much all of those occasions. So through surfing, you you touched a lot of people in your life, you know, younger and older, and they would influence you and you would, you would understand things. And then because of my sponsorship in in both surfing and or skate, skateboarding, you get to develop an understanding of business um, and what activities are out there, uh, how they unfold, how they go down. So what you can get is a real confidence in belief in yourself. You have to believe in yourself because if you're competing, you have to make it up on your own you have to do it and you have to judge it you have to work through it you have to manipulate everything so it's not a cockiness but it's just a confidence that you can make it mm. and a belief in yourself and I think that was certainly part of me and um, I figured no need to look back just keep forging on and that's awesome. I, 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 I mean, and even if you take zero back on the um, competitive aspect and you go to just the surfing, what everything you just described then from the competitive aspect, surfing gives you as well, mm-hmm. you know, that the humility, you know, it, you think you're killing it and then all of a sudden you have like there's a big day and you can't get out or you get smashed and, and all of a sudden you feel like a kook again you know that just a continuum and then you got to get back out and they're just always it's upping yep for the love of bettering yeah yeah well you just make it up as you go along but a lot of it too in back in that day there wasn't obviously as many surfers around so you'd pull up somewhere and there'd be nobody and but you'd see the surf and you and you'd fall in love with the look of good ways. So you just paddle out. You don't think of the consequences. You just go do it, because that's what we did back in that day. Leggies. Uh, well, I certainly learnt without a leg rope. Yeah. And then when they got developed, of course, you use that because it's smarter. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But I, I did a, quite a lot of surfing without leg ropes, of course. Yeah. And. Um and so was it I've got it written down here was it 73 that you came third in the Bells comp uh, maybe maybe 74 yeah. I think it was yep. and how was that was that who were you competing against in, in that uh, 
There was just all the usual suspects at that time um, from Sydney and Queensland, you know, the the likes of Michael Peterson and et cetera, et cetera. Um, So there was a lot of competitive uh, surfers. I'd also, uh, I got a third in that year, uh, but also too, I made the final a few years prior to that, that um, was sort of the format, because at that time it wasn't, um, pro when when I got in the, the final uh, and that was won by Terry Fitzgerald and uh, there was a lot of good names in that final as well um, I think Jeff Hackman was in it at, at the time uh, Keith Paul I think might have been in it as well uh, so that I thought that that was a, a really good achievement because it was a bit more like an Australian title at that time where it was made up of six-man heats mm-hmm. and you ended up with a six-man final. Whereas when it was um, in uh, 74, I think there was only like four in the heat. Um, so it was a bit spaced out. Like and, and was that one at Bells as well? That was at Bells, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, was, was it Terry Fisher? Was he the Sultan of Speed? That's, that's him, yeah. 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 <laughs> was he that fast? Um, well, I think he, he kind of got that name when he was in Hawaii. Yeah. More so, and it was just his style of of arcing, you know, his back and just putting his arm in the air, and and also going fast, of course. Yeah. But so he got nicknamed the Sultan of Speed, yes. And um, we, you guys, at that time, were you all getting along pretty well? Yeah, 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 yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I kind of remember that certainly. Uh, after that, that one where uh, Terry Fitzgerald won, he said to me that I should move to Sydney because if you want to be a more competitive surfer, you have to get out of Victoria <laughs> and uh, and go to Sydney where there's those type of more uh, dumping beach breaks and, and more competitive surfers around you. So That was the ethos even, though, um, even recently, though, wasn't it, to move to the Queensland to surf with all those guys was to up... Yeah, well, probably that was more the thought at that time, but um, because really the surfer of note during that era was Wayne Lynch, and there really was Wayne was more or less head and shoulders above you know most other Victorian surfers at that time. So, um, so it was sort of looked upon that maybe, well, certainly Queensland and um, New South Wales produced more competitive surfers than Victoria did. But then Wayne being one out of the box just smashes that whole theory altogether. Well, in a sense, but, but Wayne didn't really want to compete too much himself um, as, as he developed later in his time. But, um, but yeah... Well, it was, you know, I always thought it was a bit difficult and a little bit harder because w- when you grow up as a kid, say in Melbourne, you, you, can't, you can only surf on the weekend, mm. re- really. Uh, whereas you grow up on the coast, well, you can surf every day. Mm. And Victoria, of course, with its colder weather, was probably viewed more restrictive. There was more opportunities of weather-wise to... Um, to surf in New South Wales and Queensland at that time, whereas now it's not viewed the same way. You just surf Victoria probably more than you do for the guys up north because we probably get more 
consistent good big surf than they do mm. they just have the different style of surf mm. um, up there and of course then they have the warmer weather and the warmer water so and do you remember the first time that you saw wayne in the water uh or yeah, roughly roughly yeah, yeah yeah i think um i think i can remember it was i went to a, an event um and it was probably 1962 could have even been i think i've got a trophy that might have the date on it but it was at point leo and wayne was at point leo with his um with his father had driven him from lawn because he lived at lawn of course mm. in in those days yeah so that was the first time i've seen him that's a big hike from lawn yeah well it would you know somebody else has got to drive it when you're only 10 years yeah. old or something <laughs> like that yeah. And so now, now, do you remember, um, I'll change gears a bit, do you remember um, having the conversation with Greeny about this idea of a business? Um, yeah, yeah, well, certainly um, business just developed. You know, the, the idea of, of business really in the very early days was just a matter of survival and being able to live somewhere like Torquay, um, where there really wasn't jobs, and local jobs there was. There was certainly opportunity in Geelong if you wanted to work in a traditional sense, but the surfing jobs were more or less uh, done at odd hours um, to be able to let yourself surf. So it was just really a matter of surviving, and things just developed from there you know, into more product and, and bigger brands and bigger productions and and bigger economies and whatnot. But it was never seen as intentional as to how big the businesses could grow to back in the day that you were there in the early days. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really an, like an amazing thing to, to look at from the outside. You know, and, and I can kind of see how you, you would have started off with just like, oh, I want to be able to work where I can surf and, and create something to, like, did you ever get that feeling, wow, this thing is running away? Well, eventually, yes. Um, saw the opportunity as to where it could go to, but it, that wasn't seen in the very early days. Yeah, It was only seen as you begin to develop and and as you develop things and opportunities grow and so you then start to realize that you can there's more opportunity again to to get it even bigger or branch it out even further yeah um and i suppose that reality really came to us more so when we began exporting out of australia um, because we had a necessity to export to Japan at one time. We had too much board short stock uh, before we had too much other stock of other products. We really had board shorts. And so for our survival, we had to sell those and you can't sell board shorts during the winter back in those days. Yeah. The retailers don't want to buy them for a start. 
and people don't want to buy a new pair of shorts to paddle out in the middle of winter anywhere in Australia, really. So we began to um, export to Japan. And then at the, at the same time that that necessity came along, we had a, a licensing agreement with um, Jeff Hackman and Bob McKnight in America, uh, whereby they would make up um, board shorts uh, under license. And we saw that as an opportunity to grow. And once that happened, and at the same time we began to sell to Japan and export it out, because uh, we, we were producing, of course, in our own plant in Torquay. So then we could see that we have a, a, a summer market, which would be in the Southern Hemisphere, and a Northern market in our winter. Uh, and then from there, we grew it out to, to sell to Europe as well, to export to Europe, which, of course, is another Northern Hemisphere market. Now, you, you correct me if I'm wrong, you went to Europe and you got a station wagon and you drove down looking for distributors yourself? Uh, well, I did end up, end up with a car, but it wasn't a station wagon. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I just ended up with a, an old dark green, racing car green, a Mercedes sedan. Um, but I'd already been aware that you could get a special um, third-party insurance type thing in Holland fairly cheaply. So I landed in Holland and that's where I bought a car. And then from there, I ended up traveling through parts of Germany uh, and Switzerland uh, and uh, and then ended up in the destination I was really going to, which was in um, around Biarritz in southern France on the Atlantic Ocean. Unreal. Mm. And that was a good time? Well, it was just a time to, to drive and, and talk to people because yeah. um, it, I was just looking for people that could be distributors because... Um, we needed to continue our exporting, but we didn't have any representatives in those countries. And uh, windsurfing has started to raise its head as an opportunity market uh, for, for more of those inland European countries. So I thought, well, here's the opportunity. We'll end up um, on the surf coast of France at Biarritz, but in the meantime, we'll see if we can drum up a little bit of activity with people that are involved in windsurfing, which is what I was looking for. Yeah. So anyway, we, well, I did find people and we ended up with relationships and ongoing uh, distributors and marketers. And, yeah. Now, when can I, um, you gave the, the uh, distribution rights, I might have that wrong or right, mm. to um, Jeff Hackman. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that right? Yep. Yep. That was a deal that was done here, is that right, at a Chinese restaurant? Yeah, well, it was sort of done here. That wasn't done by me. That was um, a discussion that he had with um, Alan Green. Okay. Uh, and it was the start of the development, but the, 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 the part of the deal wasn't consummated until a little bit later. I, I think Greeny and I were on our way up to... Um, up north on a sales trip and we happened to be in Queensland and and they, they rang in from California and that's when the deal was confirmed. Okay, because this was just, a, um, I'd read, I think in the Hackman book that maybe he'd eaten a, a napkin or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's, that's the story. You know. 
<laughs> you know, eat, eat the doily and you can and you can have the the license. Yeah. But um, how can you eat a doily? But <laughs> well, I don't know. Jeff yeah, Hackman yeah. sounded like a bit of an animal, I reckon. And, yeah. yeah. You know, I probably could have eaten it for the deal, I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so coming back, I just thought I'm going to change gears again. Now, when you, uh, before that, I know I jump around here a bit, were you working for Fred Pike? I was, yeah. Um, I started off there cutting wetsuits. Yeah. Um, and I did that for a while. Uh, and, of course, he was a competitor to Rip Curl. Uh, he had um, dive and surf uh, wetsuits, which was like a uh, styled on an American brand. It wasn't an American brand uh, that ended up becoming piping hot in the end. Um, but then at one point... So did Rod buy that? Yes. Yeah, uh, Rod Brooks eventually got involved in the piping hot aspect of it all. Yeah. And I think... And also, I designed some board shorts uh, and a couple of other products for um, Fred Pike at the time. And that's, of course, when I was around the time that I was more or less discussing things or, or shaping our friendship with Alan Green yeah. because he was out on the road selling Quicksilver shorts and I was selling Dive and Surf mm-hmm. shorts. And I can often remember, you know, we might drive back but we wouldn't be together. We'd be in different cars and we'd all be both having a roadie <laughs> after you know being in Melbourne try, trying to do some sales work. And uh, we would run into each other, of course, sometimes out there on the sales road, but also to run into each other at the pub and, and around the beaches at yeah. the time. And so in the end, I just developed an opportunity to join him in the early stages and he knew that I was... Um, the sort of person that was just capable of adding to the business. Yeah, yeah, and and you, yeah, like from what you said earlier, you already had the business mind. You knew you wanted to be in that business. Yes, yes, certainly. Yep. You know, like I can't say. I wish I related to that point of view, mm-hmm. but like you know, what I mean, I don't think too many people young, at, at, or maybe at that time, you know, I was so focused at just surfing. Yeah, it, all the rest didn't matter. Mm. I, I wish that I had I had more like oh I had an equal you know I want to be successful in this area you know at, at younger yeah I'm not saying but I you, don't know, have it you know everyone's different yeah yeah, yeah yeah no 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 totally <laughs> no 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 a hundred percent yeah a hundred percent yeah and um and so was Fred shaping surfboards when you were there uh, he was doing that yeah he was also making um, skis as as well for um you know surf club type of guys he yeah. made a beautiful ski yeah. uh, or various models of skis himself and he also made boards but he had a, a number of shapers move through under his guise under his leadership and his mentoring um, I think even Claw shaped for a while at Fred Pike's before you know sh- moving to Rip Curl yeah. and uh, shaping and um, and who was shaping your boards around that time uh, Willie Muncie really yeah Graham Willie Muncie was making my boards when I was at Fred Pike's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, and so uh, this is probably rough. You don't have to talk about it if you don't want, but I wanted to ask you about, you know, your relationship with John 
Pawson and 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 the sh- untimely ending of that. Yeah, well, obviously that was a very um, sad and um, and well, it, it wasn't really debilitating, but it was a, a shock really um, because we had you know a great friendship going on. He. I was married quite young. He was the best man at my wedding. And we had, you know, grown up as kids together. And of course, um, we were going to go to uh, Phillip Island because uh, there was a surfing contest that was coming up. And on a particular day, we thought, oh, well, we'll better get some practice in. So we went out to, um, to Bells. And it was pretty rough. It was kind of west-southwest wind which is not ideal it wasn't really quite fully offshore Um, and it looked kind of pretty rough and there was no one out at Bells and there was a number of people out at Winky Pop there wasn't that many out really so we decided that we would um, we would go out at Bells just the two of us and and so anyway we just prepared and, and and paddled out um, and I got out the back and caught a couple of waves and then I, John didn't appear. So I didn't see him again um, from that, that point on that surf. And, and was it, it was big. Did you yeah, just was, make it out? Was yeah, it? well, uh, I struggled to make it out, but yeah. I, I got out first go. Yeah. So and I went out in the traditional way, which is just to paddle off the beach and paddle through the closeout end of... Of, um, of bells and so just in timing I just managed to sort of squeeze through squeeze through yeah. yeah and so anyway after a few waves I thought oh this is crap and John's not even here and I thought oh well I'll, I'll come in now and normally you would surf the wave and towards the end of the wave it begins to close out on that long section that runs between the end of the wave and Winky Pop uh, Point and Cliff yeah uh, and you just and then you just prone out and travel to the beach. Um, but when I did do that, I ended up right in the corner of um, of Bell's Beach in the corner, right up against the cliff at Bell's, and that was just an indication of how far west the water was moving. Yeah. It was moving at a tremendous pace, uh, and it sort of. Reminded me, I think it was two years ago. They had sort of similar conditions where they were at the Rip Curl Pro at Bells, and it was really big. And the surfers were ending up down near where the takeoff is for Winky Pop because of the water movement Mm. that's going so far from right to left, you know, from the westerly drift. So it was a bit similar to that on that day. Uh, and then as I was walking up the beach um, at Bells to go to the, the steps to climb up, someone had been coming down the beach, uh, w- you know, walking towards me on running even, and it was someone to tell me that um, John had been caught out and had been dragged in to the reef at Winky Pop. So he, he must have been knocked unconscious or something happened and he drifted over the button at Winky Pop and then they somebody ended up bringing him to the shore at Winky Pop so um, I ended up driving jumping in the car at Bell's car park and driving up to Winky Pop and then I had to walk all the way down to the beach and it was sort of a pretty rough time oh my god Mm. 
it's so you know it's just so sad yeah um just one of those I suppose you know how many people have been washed over the button yeah what an unfortunate yeah so it was um it was just you know a freak accident really but very sad very sad for for his family and and uh friends and everyone yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um and even, uh, i think it was um i think alan green had come in to the airport probably the day after i think and uh, somebody some customer officer said something to him about um somebody you know famous surfer uh, competitive surfer um from Torquay drowned and his immediate thought that it was me what a time so you guys have been in business now for a little while and um did 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 that like put the brakes on for you for a while with surfing and you know um not really um I mean, you, you, you lose, you know, one of your closest friends, um, and that's not easy to take, but you, you don't stop. You don't stop living and you don't stop surfing and you continue to do it. But um, unfortunately, you don't do it with one of your mates. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've, I've lost a few friends in, over the years who, and it's, it's funny, you know, I know what you mean. It wasn't under the same circumstances, but semi-similar. And, and it, like, it's sometimes nice when I'm sitting out the back just to give them the thought, you know? And, yeah. Uh, this life is a funny thing, isn't it? It's pretty fleeting for us all, really, at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, no doubt through this journey for you, it's uh, afforded you some amazing experiences. And have you had some, like, just amazing like trips to certain places and surfs that yeah well obviously you have because yeah. I mean that's one of the benefits <laughs> yeah. I've had of my life is being able to travel so widely uh, and then at the same time you know you can go surfing yeah. uh, and do what you love uh, and you know that opportunity is afforded I think one of the ones that is really memorable to me was um, probably 1979, um, and we had a guy that was working with us at that time from Sydney. He's called Bruce Raymond, and uh, he was through um, through the early years. He was sort of a pro. He was a pro, but it was in the early formulative days of, of pro surfing. There wasn't a lot of money in it, and only the very best got through but he Bruce did well but he he became a really good friend and obviously I'd been in Japan and so I'd been working up there and at times up there there was um you know traveling around in the hotels in the city of say Tokyo or wherever it may be you'd be up in this high-rise building and it'd be costing you about three hundred dollars a night just to stay there and, and then when I finished the business on that particular trip, we're flying home, I was flying home and I went to Bali and that's where I caught up with Bruce because we had a trip designed to go into G-Land um, on uh, 
Java's east, east point, east coast. And so this, this was with a guy called um, Boyum. And Boyum had just at that time built a couple of cottages just up on the knoll at G-Land and he had a tree house um, there and a, and a cantina, which was the kitchen kitchenette campsite. Um, and so we went in there for a week. Uh, we went in with um, Peter McCabe, uh, Jim Banks, who was a pro from New South Wales, and Octavio who was a Brazilian pro surfer who had been in Bali at the time. So there, so how many of us? There's, there's five of us plus Boyum. And so Boyum wanted $100 a day US. So, and the, In 79? Yeah. And in the cottages that he built, um, there was an upstairs and a downstairs. They were just like... Um, downstairs, there were single units... Like four of them, and then upstairs it was divided into two halves. So you might have two mattresses on one side and two mattresses on the other side, and mosquito netting hanging off the roof, and they're tucked under the, the mattresses on the floor. And I can remember sitting with me on the floor, looking out over the the fencing. It wasn't really fencing; it was just a one horizontal rail that was there. But you could put your legs underneath it and look out. And I was just looking at these waves that were peeling off and there actually was whales like in the bay at G-Land um, and they were spurting out and you could see the Javanese volcanoes in the distance, oh the God. high hills. Yeah. And I'm there sitting there and I'm, I'm saying to Bruce, how's this? You know, like $100 a day and I've just been in Tokyo where it's $300 a day and look, look at the surf. The surf was immaculate. And uh, so we had a, a great trip, that trip, and Boyum had, was so organised, he had those long cool light type um, eskies and with big long ice um, staples in, in it to keep all the juices and the fruits all cool. And he had fishing boats triggered up to come in from the village and to sell us fish. Um, which he had a couple of Javanese guys there barbecuing, either barbecuing fish and barbecuing chicken, organic chicken, and then having um, brown rice and red rice, which was, Boyum was on a health trip at that time. So the food was absolutely fantastic. And we could eat like that. And then you could come out from a surf and you had like an Alibaba type uh, plastic tub and you could ladle fresh water. So you could come out and just ladle um, fresh water that he had the guys gather and to wash all the salt off. So it was um, remarkable. And then in the end of that particular trip, the last day was about eight to 10 feet at Speed Reef and it was perfect. So it was like a fitting end to our time there. What a paradise. And there was, there was only five of us plus Boyum surfing. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that was sort of one of the lucky times that you, you get. But I did it again the next year, and um, and we had a few other crew that came from Torquay with us. Um, 
So, um, and John Pawson was one of them actually. And, oh, awesome. and I had um, Andrew Irwin, who's a doctor, he was there, and Jerry Lopez was there with McCabe on that particular trip. Did you ever get cut up on the inside section? Um, not really. A few little scratches and that, but nothing severe. It's pretty gnarly, that end bit, though, right? It, too right, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, I gave a few of them a few wide berths when I was there on one trip. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm> thinking, <laughs> nope. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. That is awesome. Well, it's like, even think about it, like... You know, I'm sure that's a small slither, but like, do you ever think, you know, through you following your heart and just going on the journey of life, I suppose, as opposed to what you should go back to school and da 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 da, and now, you know, you sort of walk through that, and then how much you've been able to give to so many people? Do you ever think about that? Because, like, from pro surfers all the way down, you've had a big influence. Yeah. No, I don't necessarily give things like that a, a lot of thought. Um, I know I'm just grateful for the opportunities that I've had to be able to do what I've done and experience what I've experienced. Um, and along the way, if that's helping people along, well, that's great and that's the good part. Uh, it, nothing was really done necessarily with the key thought that, you know, you're benevolent and you help people. It's just part of what happens. You try and be benevolent as you go. You don't try and set out to be no, no, yeah. benevolent in that way. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I'm thankful to the journey. I mean, there's more and more stories, uh, like coming out of um, Germany trade show in the middle of winter, of their winter, European winter. Um, and I was with Brian Singer because we were sharing a booth together as uh, two Australian surf companies uh, at a trade show. Uh, in Dusseldorf in Germany, in industrial Dusseldorf. <laughs> and we ended up uh, going to see some people that we knew at Argentier, which is at Chamonix um, in the, the Alps in France. And at that time, we both skied, but I think Brian was probably a little bit keener in the past few years up until that point than I was. But um, we... We got unbelievable powder there during that trip and uh, and we, we were guided by the people that knew the area so they could steer us away from avalanches or any kind of major danger. Um, and we just had a, a ball because it would snow at night in the valley and we would just kick all this powder snow as we walk up the road to have dinner or something like that. And then you'd wake up in the morning and it'd be blue skies and the sun would be shining and the mountain would be full of powder, you know. So um, This is at Chamonix. Chamonix, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's at the valley, a little township at the end of the valley. It's called Argentier, whereas Chamonix proper is a little bit down the road and at um, at the main town. So it's um, it got quite. I've never been there, but I hear it's got quite the reputation. I was in Mexico surfing a few years ago, and I met this gentleman from Chamonix, and he was an extreme kind of skier yeah. guy, and. He wasn't the best surfer, but he was certainly having a crack. Mm. And I remember saying to him, what, what drew you to, away from the mountains to this? And he had said, look, I just, I'm losing too many friends in the mm. skiing world and this seems to be a, just as much fun and 
Yeah. A bit safer. Yeah, they certainly lose a lot up in that area because it's, it is very dangerous. But the funny thing was Brian stayed on um, at, at uh, Jean-Tierre for about a week after I left because I decided I was going to Mauritius because I wanted to surf Tamarin Bay. So it was in February and I, and I went to um, Mauritius. And so, you know, like there's always been this rivalry, Rip Girl, Quicksilver, but really at the core of it, you guys have all always been cool. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And are you into the horses as well? No, I'm not. No, no. no. I, I had, I've owned one and I used to go a little bit when, um, when Alan was in the early days, when Alan, well, he's just keener now than he's probably ever been, but he's got more money to be keener. So <laughs> but no, 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 I lost an interest in that sort of long ago. It was never really part of my DNA, whereas it's part of, it was part of his DNA where he grew up with his family. Yeah. They, they were a family that sort of enjoyed the Melbourne side of town when there was footy in the winter and at other times they could go to the track. So he grew up at the track. Uh, and I don't think Brian did, but Alan's influenced Brian enough to get him interested. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and they've had a fair bit of success, I think. Well, certainly they have if you look in terms of Melbourne Cup. It's yeah. been remarkable, really. Yeah. Do they uh, dabble in the overseas market at all? Uh, as far as horse racing goes? Yeah. No. Yeah. no. no. Um, and so going back to surfing and people like Tommy Carroll, Ross Clark back in the whether it's the 80s, late 80s mm-hmm. that those guys really came to fruition and you got, you guys brought them in. Yeah. Um and and was that part of the Gen X thing that was that uh Well, that was just coined as a, as um perhaps part of the advertising marketing. But I think the thing that probably was the more notable was Echo Beach ah, at the time. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, board shorts that had the geometric flavours, you know, the polka dots and the harlequins and various stripes and all that sort of stuff. And they were influenced by racing, were, were they? And initially, I think, initially, yeah, the the subject came up with um, Simon Buttonshaw, who's the artist, yeah. and Greeny was talking to him using some of the silks that the, the jockeys used as a bit of influence to develop that type of theme and that type of look, that type of artwork that produced those sort of prints. But um, we, we certainly got those shorts in when people didn't realise that we had made them and they certainly hadn't ordered them. So it was a bit of a bit of a stunner to some of the retailers. And I remember General Pence, the, the owner, or might have been the buyer through the owner, um, wanted to send them all back because he didn't order them. So I had to convince them to, um, to hang on to them. And, of course, they sold like hotcakes. So... And was is Echo Beach a band or something? Is it? What's it what's, who did someone come in and say, "Ah, oh, Echo Beach"? Or like, well, there was the song Echo Beach. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. There. Okay. We go. Yeah. In America, yeah. was um, some I can't even remember who the band was, but Steve Jones, who was sort of a pro surfer as well, he was made of Bruce Raymond's from Sydney, um, and. Steve Jones came in to the office in Torquay and saw 
um, the geometric type prints that we were putting on the shorts and and he looked at it and he just said and this is part of the lines from that song he's gone far away in time Echo Beach and that was when Echo Beach got coined as the the marketing name for for that geometric look yeah far away in time Echo Beach because they were futuristic looking well, or, he, and it worked that, with the song and the patterns or? it was just well, I think he was just coining that terminology because he was going far away. <laughs> you know, out of surprise. Yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah. Like far away in time, like yeah. somewhere way out there where you would never see it coming. Yeah. You know, that, that all of a sudden this popped up out of nowhere and called it Echo Beach. Mm. And um, like growing up watching Tom and Ross and those guys surf just the power surfing through the 80s and everything were you in awe of the way that they surfed and oh, stoked certainly. to have them in the stable yeah, yeah oh, totally because um you know they were so good but i remember um tommy carroll at, at pipeline one time he was just absolutely awesome was that on the pink board i can't remember which board he was on it may have been one where it had that swirl that sort of came off the nose from from wide to narrow yeah. may have been that one he did that hook turn well he, he he'd drop in a pipe and more or less travel down but he would swing out to the right before he actually did yeah. to his right that is before he'd do his left hand um, bottom turn which was a natural turn for him so and he was just so powerfully awesome on those and it was quite big um, and it was the final, uh, and he he ripped. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah, he certainly did. And um, and what about having um, Kelly uh, in the stable? Did you did you know like from when you saw him from such a young age that this guy was going to be who he became? Uh, I I knew early, but I didn't know. You know, at the the, the outset, I remember we were at. Um, Cornwall, and there was the world surfing titles were on in England. Yeah, in England. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. um, and and Kelly was in the American team at that time. I can't even remember what year it was, but it was. Um, yeah, so that was the first time I really seen Kelly live. Uh, he would. I don't know how old he was then. He was probably only sixteen or something like that. But, yeah, I didn't realise he'd have the influence that he'd have. He's by far and away the best surfer I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Still, yeah. Yeah. And, he, like, for me, he just is, like, um, I, the way he just keeps, like, you know, I don't know, surfers used to retire in their 20s, right? Yeah. And I don't know how old Kelly is now, but... He's still shaking it up, right? Yeah, he's about 44 now. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. hope for us all. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Um, can I say thank you very much? No worries. John, thanks. John. Yep. Super appreciate your time. Okay, pleasure. Cheers. Bye. Well, there you have it. There was my chat with none other than John Law. John, if you're out there, thank you so much. Um, And for whoever else is out there, wasn't that cool? Um, Like, wow, you know, like 
people's lives, John's life, John's journey from, you know, fucking up in year 12 to just sort of following his heart and sort of knowing what he wanted is just... For me, I mean, I just love that. I love hearing people's journeys. I love, you know, I love my own journey. Um, you know, it's not so linear. And, and, and talking to people about their successes and their lives, you know, helps inspire me just to stay on my own track. I can make, let's just make this about me. Here we go. And, um, but no, if you're out there and I, I hope you somehow drew some inspiration from it because in a world where like we're told we have to do this and we have to do that and, you know, like you look at, at, at a lot of successful people who have had success in their field it has been less about what they've studied and more about their intuition and following their heart. And, um, and I think for kids out there today in the world who are like forced, you've got to do this, you've got to do that because that's what you have to do and that's what makes a life. Well, you know, I, I don't know, you know, for yes for some and no for others and, and the no might look like them being in trouble, but fucking now I'm really waffling. I mean, do I sound like a therapist? Um, okay. <laughs> I'm going to stop. Uh, whoever you are out there in the, the wide ethos, um, I hope this finds you smiling. I hope you're doing well. Thanks again for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed my chat with John Law. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Adios. Adios.